Hello everyone, welcome back to Series 6 of the Hay Festival podcast, where we'll be revisiting our latest festival events and catching up with your favourite authors backstage about their interests and influences. Today is the turn of Oxford mathematician Marcus de Sotoy, who talks about his book Thinking Better, The Art of the Shortcut. Marcus discovers various ways we can think creatively in order to be lazier in our daily lives, and who doesn't want that? We'll start with a section of Marcus's event with neurologist Hannah Critchlow before he joins me for a coffee backstage. For 2,000 years, we've been gathering kind of techniques to solve problems that at the first sight look just really difficult. Um, but then we find some sneaky way to avoid all the hard work. Because, you know, mathematicians, one of the reasons I fell in love with maths is that I realised it's, it's really a subject for lazy people. I think most people think maths is you know about hard work long division lots of decimal places but actually mathematics is is actually about finding these clever ways uh, of solving problems so so that was part of the inspiration for the book i thought okay i need to cheer john harris up and uh, and humanity for um uh, the fact that ai seems to be doing amazing things but i think that our saving grace is that we sometimes don't want to do all that hard work that a computer can and we find these cleverer ways to solve the problems. You know, Babe Ruth, um, the reason he was such a big uh, hitter of home runs in baseball, um, he admitted was that he hated running. So he was like, just, I just don't want to run from one base to the other. So I'm just going to slog this thing out of the ground and then I just get to wander around. So, so I think, you know, laziness in society is regarded as kind of, you know, it's one of the deadly sins. I don't think it's a deadly sin at all. I think it's going to be our saving grace that we're lazy and we find clever ways to do things. So this book is all about the clever ways that we've come up to avoid hard work. And it's not just mathematicians uh, or the human species that make shortcuts. You can also see it across nature. Well, that's the interesting thing. Uh, I think humans are intrinsically lazy, but also nature is quite lazy. So often we see the shortcuts first happening um, in nature so for example um, if you blow a bubble uh, why does it form a perfect sphere well a perfect sphere is actually the shape which uses the least amount of energy to contain that volume of air so nature just uh, it it sort of finds these uh, solutions which are kind of low energy solutions like the idea of a ball rolling down uh, into a valley it tries to find the kind of low energy solutions and we've been able to exploit this as humans. For example, um, Fry Otto, who built this wonderful um, stadium for the Olympics in Munich. Um, if anyone's been there, it's just an amazing, curvaceous kind of roof, um, very organic feel to it. And in fact, what he did was to realize, OK, well, I don't want I want a low energy solution. I don't want high tensile strength on, across the pieces. So he made a sort of structure and then blew bubbles onto this structure. And the bubbles found the low energy solutions, the kind of shortcut, the, the, the geometry, which would be a uh, least amount of energy on the whole structure. And so he then just scaled up this uh, kind of natural shortcut um, into the, the building we see in Munich. And actually, you know, many uh, sort of animals use kind of the idea of these kind of mathematical shortcuts. So the, the bee, for example, the most mathematical of all insects, um, why does it make uh, a, um, a, a hexagon for its beehive, the uh, the bees um, where where it stores its honey. What do you call that thing? Um, honeycomb. honeycomb. Okay. Sorry, yes, yeah. Uh, it's been a long hay. Um, uh, uh, so the honeycomb. Why is it hexagons? Why isn't it 
squares, for example, or triangles. Um, and again, the, this seems to be a, a low energy solution. It, it costs a lot of energy for a bee to make wax. Um, and so um, uh, it, it wants to find a, a lattice which uses the least, least amount of wax similar to the bubble uh, to contain that area for, for the honey. Um, and it turns out that the hexagon uses the least amount of wax. It's the shape, which is the kind of low energy solution. So the, the bee has found that. But it took us, you know, only a few hundred years ago were we as humans able to prove that that is mm -hmm. the kind of uh, shortcut solution. So um, yeah, another kind of one where, you know, light always finds shortcuts. So, for example, that weird effect that you have when you're in the swimming pool and your, your legs are kind of shortened. Um, that's because light uh, tries to find the fastest way to get to your eyes. So it's slowed down in water, the speed of light in water. So it tries to get out of the water quickly and then goes to your eye in the air in a kind of longer route. So light just naturally finds these shortcuts. Um, and we actually had to come up with a tool to understand often how nature was doing these things. And that, in fact, is the tool of the calculus. The calculus that Newton and Leibniz came up with um, is our kind of version of finding the shortcut for how light uh, gets to our eyes so quickly. Um, and there's a kind of similar puzzle. If you, uh, if you see somebody out at sea who's drowning and you're a lifeguard, um, what's the most optimal place to run over the sand, which is the slow part of the journey? Well, no, as you could run faster over the sand and then swim. So you want to be on the sand longer than you are swimming because generally you swim slower than you run on the sand. So finding the optimal place, we actually have to use this tool of the calculus to find the, the place which is the least amount of time to get to the, the drowning uh, uh, swimmer. But light, you know, the same way. You know, how is light solving this? It isn't doing calculus. And what we think is actually light is exploiting... Uh, quantum physics in a way to try all the different routes and then it collapses to the one which is the shortest. So nature, you see, can try lots of different ways of doing things before it finds the answer. It's tapping into quantum physics. But we don't want to have to do that. We're creating, you know, a building or a bridge or doing engineering. We don't want to try all the different possibilities out. And so one of the shortcuts I talk about is this powerful tool of calculus to to hone in on that low energy efficient most powerful way to to sort of solve the problem but um yeah and do you ever think that sometimes a shortcut cannot be advantageous actually it doesn't lead to better thinking but it can actually create the wrong answer i, I think wrong way yeah I, I i try to make this distinction in the book because i didn't want sh you know uh, if you say shortcut some people think are you talking about cutting corners mm -hmm. now if you're building a house I don't want to cut corners when I'm building a house because it might fall down. So I don't mind shortcuts which enable me to build the house more efficiently, but I want it to be as stable as it would be if I took the time uh, the, the long way around. So, so I think, but sometimes uh, it's important to uh, exploit cutting corners, but understand that the corners you're cutting, the things you're throwing away really don't matter um, to the problem. So I've got a whole... Uh, chapter on on diagrams for example because i think they're a very powerful tool in science you know not just in maths but in science more generally about crystallizing you know what's important about this problem and what can i just kind of throw away and is not uh, important something like the london underground map is the perfect example somehow that is not a, a geometric map of the layout of the the um stations in the london underground 
in fact if you look at such a map it it's really confusing and you know some really close together some spaced out um but what beck realized in the 30s was actually the the distances between the stations is unimportant i can throw that information away so i'm going to make a simpler uh thing which is just about the connections between um the the london underground and, and so then he used this idea of topology mm -hmm. which is kind of bendy geometry uh, to rearrange the things such it was much easier to to navigate so to navigate around which is the whole point of it yes yes yeah. there's so my background's in neuroscience I'm yeah a scientist um um i'm very interested in the brain and the brain is constantly making shortcuts so you're talking about us living in this data rich world well our senses actually input around something is estimated to be about 11 billion bytes of data per second that enter our senses that's crazy and we're yeah. only, but then even more um incredible i find is that we're only consciously aware of around 40 to 50 bytes per second so that's a minuscule minuscule proportion and so our brains are trying to make sense of all of this information that's coming from the outside of the world and the way that it does that on a second by second basis is by taking shortcuts and it takes shortcuts based on our past experiences and our past experiences can be very individual based on our life experiences and you know how we've grown up and particular experiences that we've had and there's um, a really nice illusion here that shows how sometimes our brain gets it wrong so we make the wrong assumptions um, so we're used to seeing faces in our environment and when we get to the back end of the mask the shadow information is telling us that the eyes and the nose at the back end of the mask are pointing backwards but our brains interpret that as another face popping out because we just ignore that shadow information we're just disregarding that information and focusing on something that we've seen before that's so spooky that's so spooky yeah so so we're taking shortcuts within our brains all the time but sometimes I mean, and it's great because it means that we can think and react to the environment very, very quickly. Yeah. But it also means that actually sometimes we get it wrong. And this is an example of a consensus in our wrongness. But individually, because of our past experiences, we make different, we take different shortcuts. Yes, yes. It's very interesting because um, uh, I talked to Zaha Hadid about her architecture and she has this kind of very... Um, uh, like blobby architecture that she, her studio still makes um, and, and she said something sort of similar because we have such um, uh, experience with cube shaped buildings and cube shaped rooms or rectangular cuboid rooms that um, it means that when we look at a building from just one perspective um, we're able to fill in all of the gaps about what the building's like um, but she didn't want that she wanted buildings where you actually have to explore the building in a way to understand really what the building was like so uh, in a way she said her architecture was trying to disrupt um, our expectations about how to, the building will will feel as we then move through it. Um, in a way, that was what the Baroque was always doing. The Baroque used lots of curves. So when you go into a Baroque building, um, you know, previous buildings, you could just understand the building in one go from the perspective because you saw cubes and your brain knew how to do those. But then there's all these new curves that the Baroque introduced and then these blobby architecture. Uh, our brain just didn't have all of that backstory mm -hmm. to know well I don't I'm actually sure what this building looks like I have to move through the building to, to really understand it and that sparks the so min the, the novelty seeking sensation seeking yeah. uh, within our brain so that we become more curious and we want to imagine we want to discover a little bit more yeah yeah I, I'd actually I mean part of the book is 
talk it's not just about mathematics i talked to a lot of people from different disciplines um about whether they had shortcuts in their own uh professions and one of the people i sections i talked about was a neuroscientist um who uh, was very intrigued he wanted to become um a, a grandmaster at chess and he he did his like 10,000 hours that um uh, uh been told that would, would get him to this level he trained with all the top teachers in russia and he n could never pass the uh, title of master at chess and he wondered you know what is a, is is there something different about my brain to the grandmasters um that means that i just can't hit this top level um, and he started, he then turned to neuroscience as a kind of, uh, to explore whether there were differences in the way a grandmaster plays chess to just somebody who's, uh, you know, leveled down. And so I, I did an experiment with him and he wired us, uh, a me and a grandmaster up and we both played chess against each other. I lost very quickly. Um, uh, but what he said is, uh, what I can see from the EEG is that in a way you're using more of your brain than the grandmaster is, um, that you're, you, you're kind of consciously computing things you're taking you know the the, the chess and you're you, you i can see you're almost working through and the the grandmaster was almost intuiting and shortcutting in the brain you could almost see that there was less activity going on that they were going from one area to the decision area mm -hmm. and he says this is applies to just not just um chess but sport for example those amazing you know uh, tennis players exactly how who have finessed oh their particular ways of yeah lobbying. they are not thinking at all about anything it's sort of shortcutting um uh, and i mean he's he was quite controversial in the end because he thought he could identify this before anyone even trained to be a grandmaster whether they had the brain that would be shortcutting it i mean i think that was a bit i was suspicious of that mm -hmm. but i was intrigued that you know the brain sort of is using shortcuts to do things you know at such a high level but, um mm -hmm. yeah to listen to the full event and many more with Marcus from previous festivals, you can do so by signing up to our Hay Player at hayfestival.org forward slash hayplayer. I managed to catch Marcus darting between festival events and talk to him more about his interests. So one of your favourites to start with, Marcus. What's your favourite prime number? It was such an interesting <laughs> question because, you know, when journalists first asked me this, I thought, that's a very strange question. There are infinitely many of them. How can I choose one? But then I realised, no, that's not good enough. So 17 is my favourite prime number. It's the number I play for in my football team. Uh -huh. So um, I always, uh, somebody just asked me, because when I sign my books here at Hay, um, I always put a little 17 in my signature. And somebody <laughs> said, well, what's that about? Um, and footballers always do their signatures with their shirt numbers in. You know, I'm an Arsenal supporter. When we used to go and collect lots of Arsenal signatures and they always put their shirt number. So I thought, oh, that's cute. I'll put the number I play for in my football team, which of course is a prime number. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Did you get to choose that? Uh, yes. In fact, we went so, I, I the whole thing became so nerdy that I persuaded our team actually to all play in prime numbers. So, because uh, <laughs> we thought that might have like a really great effect on our, and it did. Um, so we changed our kit because we come bottom of the league that we play in. And I, I thought, we've got to do something. So I persuaded them to change the kit. Uh, so we now look a bit like Watford. Um, and we play 2, 3, 5, 7, 11, all the way up to 43. And the season that we played in this new kit, we got promoted to the, the league above, um, where we promptly came bottom again and got demoted. So, well, I'm looking for a new mathematical theory. The primes, they only last one season. So. Does that mean you really enjoy washing the kit as well? <laughs> well, turn. I do have to take my turn. But yeah, I do love, you know, polishing the prime numbers on <laughs> yeah. the back. It's a proud washing line for oh, you. Yes. <laughs> um, I was going to ask, actually, because I know you love football. 
Are there any kind of algorithms at play in the game? Well, there is a lot of mathematics going on in there. I mean, for example, actually, I think we're celebrating uh, the anniversary of one of the most extraordinary free kicks ever taken in the history of football, which was Roberto Carlos uh, playing for Brazil against uh, France. Uh, I think it was a kind of friendly in a build-up to uh, the World Cup. But he takes this free kick from so far out uh, and he lines it up to you know, try and get it in the goal. And you think, this is crazy. How are you going to score from so far out? And... Uh, Bartes puts up a wall and you think the wall is completely unnecessary. He hits the ball so hard um, that to start with, it just looks like it's going into the stadium uh, and you can see people ducking. And then right at the last minute, the ball swings in the back of the net. And we now understand that this is actually a really interesting example of the physics of or the mathematics of the drag behind the football changing from being chaotic to regular at some point when the speed drops and it causes this really weird behavior of the football. Um, so, you know, Roberto Carlos, great footballer, but clearly a great mathematician as well, that he set, found these equations work. You have to be far out to cause this effect. So, so that's one example where, you know, like the, the mathematics of what a football can do, you can use to your advantage. It's, it's kind of geometry in motion, mm. you know, and you've got this network going on, you know, a, uh, passes become available because there is a network connection between two of your players then they go down because somebody's in got in the way so by analyzing a network you can really understand um, how to play the game and in fact you know one of the important networks that we like to analyze is the internet and Google came up with this clever way to find you know what are the really important websites that I should put at the top of a search engine um, well, you can apply the same algorithm that Google used to navigate the internet to look at the network that a football team creates. And this gives you a way of identifying, using the Google PageRank, which are the important players in the team, which seem to be hubs where, who everyone passes to and uh, out of that place. So if you can do that, it means that you can target those players, take them out of the game, and suddenly uh, you've got a way of neutralizing um, a team's attack. Brazil, for example, they don't have any players that dominate as hubs. So when you do the page rank for Brazil or Spain, for example, the tiki-taki style of football, um, you find that there's no key player through, that everything goes through it. So much harder to play against a team like that because there's no dominant player. They all are kind of equal in the network. So, yeah, maths and football, yeah, just don't get me started. You know, <laughs> We'll be here for many hours. <laughs> I mean, they, they do seem to be using more and more stats in maths as well. You're getting way more of it on the sort of infographics on the screen and yeah. session. And yeah, kids. absolutely. And, and there's a lot of data that people are just not fielding and, and using. And uh, I'm in a... A mate of mine set up a, a football betting company and he made a huge amount of money because he just measured many more things than other people were measuring. It's down to things like he would measure whether the crowd went, ooh, because that's an indication that uh, you know, the team almost scored. And so that needs to be included as a kind of measure. Um, and he made so much money, he bought his childhood football team, which was Brentford Football Club. So, you know, he proved that, you know, look yeah. at the data, um, you can understand what might happen in a football match. Um, and I know that you've uh, you've written about sort of creativity and mathematics and, and talked a lot about that in the past. And I'm kind of interested in the link with music and maths because there are composers who've used actual equations, right, in their composing. Is it the Fibonacci sequences famously one? Yes, yes. And what's what's the link? What's at play there? Do you, can you explain that? Yeah, well, I sometimes call mathematics the the science of patterns 
because that's what mathematics is looking at, patterns in numbers, patterns in geometry, helping you to see what's going to happen next. And music, in a way, is the art of patterns. It's about, it's quite an abstract world, music. It, it doesn't translate naturally into language. It's, it's its own world. And very often what a composer is doing is taking a pattern and then applying some sort of algorithm maybe to it, maybe some symmetry, maybe some, so, some way to transpose the, the theme. So uh, a lot of composers do this intuitively, but some have started to realize, hey, I can use some mathematical tricks to do some interesting things. So Bach is a very good example. He's a very algorithmic composer in the way that he will take very small seed and then apply a kind of method to generate something interesting out of it. But I would say the 20th century probably has seen those composers that have a similar spirit to Bach. And we're actually celebrating uh, the anniversary of a Greek composer called Zanakis, who worked as an architect with Le Corbusier. Um, and he uses a lot of interesting mathematics in his work. Um, uh, and I've just finished, um, uh, actually, uh, the reason I missed the first weekend of Hay was I was doing a concert um, where we took a solo cello piece that he'd written, which he used the symmetries of cube to generate um, the, the piece. And we've created an animation which explains what Zanarchus was doing. So this is a hard piece of, to listen to on a first listen for an audience. But when they see actually the dynamics of what's happening and how the piece is put together, um, audiences came away saying, well, I had a much better experience for being given an insight into the structure that Zanarchus was using. So, yeah, and I, uh, this was part of actually a project. I set up a centre at the Royal Northern College of Music with a composer, Emily Howard, which we called PRISM, which is practice and research in science and music. And we're basically uh, exploring these really interesting links between this kind of abstract world of music and abstract world of mathematics. Do you, are you musical? Do you play something? I am, and I fell in love with mathematics at the same time as I started learning a musical instrument. So for me, they've really been part of my, my journey together. So I, I started playing the trumpet when I was about 12 or 13, and that's when I fell in love with maths as well. Um, but recently I've uh, been trying to learn the cello, um, so that's been quite a challenge, a new instrument to, uh, to kind of, uh, you know, as an adult. Um, and my book on shortcuts, uh, partly I was kind of intrigued, could I find a shortcut for learning to play an instrument quickly? You know, because as a kid, you don't mind the years it takes to do the practice. Or maybe you do, actually. Uh, my kids make a lot of complaining. But, um, uh, but that was interesting because I talked to a cellist as part of that book. And she sort of said... I don't think there are any shortcuts. You know, you've just got to put in the hours of practice. So, um, uh, so yeah, music has been very much part of my life as a mathematician. And do you, whereabouts do you kind of draw inspiration from nowadays? Because obviously your career must have changed a lot and the projects you've been involved with, you're a teacher, you're a writer. Has that changed where you get kind of your ideas from? Yeah, and it's really important that it's changing because I, I want new challenges um, uh, each time I do something, I don't want to just repeat old patterns of behavior. So, so you know, I've done a lot of mathematical research, but I've enjoyed this kind of uh, time that I spent trying to share stories with other people. So I'm always looking for interesting new ways to, to share mathematical ideas. And one of my other great passions is theater. Um, so I've been doing a lot recently. I wrote a play during lockdown called The Axiom of Choice, um, which is all about kind of free will, but mathematics and a mathematical hero of mine, Andre Vey, who is um, brother of Simon Vey, who some of your listeners might have heard of as a philosopher. But 
Andre Bay has a great story and somehow I uh, knocked off this uh, Thinking Better book uh, earlier than expected thanks to the lockdown. Suddenly all us authors had time on our hands and, and my editor said, well, that's two months early. I'm not going to be able to read it yet. <laughs> so I wrote this play and I love using theatre as a way to explore abstract ideas again. I think the stage is a really wonderful place to, to play around with things that um, are perhaps not possible in the physical world but you sort of create a space where you can experiment and and, and try things out so so I, I love uh, kind of using theatre as a way to explore uh, mathematical structures. As well as his interest in theatre Marcus has done some work as a film consultant and I was curious to know more from an expert about how many mathematic films are accurately representing his field. I'm, I'm pretty impressed uh, at the ones that get it right and sort of um, uh, I mean I think uh, you know for example Interstellar was a fantastic film because I think they really explored the impact of, uh, you know, increased gravity has on slowing time and what the effect of, on their children would be. So there were really interesting ways that you can use film to explore some quite deep uh, scientific and mathematical ideas. Um, uh, I mean, there was, there was one called Pi, which I quite liked, which was sort of about this guy finding kind of messages in Pi, and that went slightly weird as he started to see kind of cabalistic messages from God and the secret to the stock exchange there. But I, I also, I liked it still because it picked up that passion for looking for patterns. It, it You know, that's what we're about, trying to see if, is there kind of some hidden information in there? So um, uh, so I think most of the time I'm, I'm pretty impressed with how the stories uh, uh, mix with the mathematics. I think that um, the, the movies, when it comes to maths, they realise they're not on in their comfort zone. <laughs> and they often ask, you know, I've, I've done quite a lot of advising for like films and theatre because they want to get the maths right. They know they could go drastically wrong. And so I think, um, you know, for example, Goodwill Hunting, uh, they thought about doing it about physics, but in, in the end, um, uh, they decided maths was the place where a janitor um, might be able to uh, um, crack the things overnight. That physics, it wouldn't. They'd need experiments, and it wasn't right. So, and then they got somebody to write the maths such that it really was a challenging problem that was on the board. So, uh, but yeah, I just did. Um, I had to for uh, Google were doing a, an advert, and they wanted a, a student sitting inside a lecture. But they were they knew all of their nerdy employees would be looking at the maths that was on the board. <laughs> so I had to work pretty hard to produce um, some, you know, really kosher maths um, that yeah. would, would not be embarrass um, their employees. As, and then they would recognize, yeah, that's a second year lecture in complex analysis. You know, like. <laughs> Are you ever tempted to put a little joke in it or something? Or get it wrong? <laughs> Does anyone check you? Uh, check well, of course, yeah, no, they, they, I could do some really surreptitious thing. Uh, one of my PhD students always used to do that. She was from Finland and every now and again, to make sure that I was actually reading her, her research, she would put a little a Finnish um, sentence in that I would have to answer. Uh, I would Google uh, translate it. Oh, that's so good. So you're quite good at kind of going off topic in your personal life, do you think? I think it's really important. So um, I think it, I, I really want to use all the different strands of uh, things I'm passionate about uh, and try and weave them together uh, to kind of uh, get people excited about mathematics. So mathematics is pretty much at the core of everything, but you know, I, I'm really excited to use music or theater or writing books like I do and talk at Hay, for example. So, um, but I'm always after a new challenge. You know, what, what new thing can I do to, to uh, kind of challenge myself? 
And do these kind of, you, you're sort of working to theatre and music, do you find that you kind of use that in your teaching then? It changes the way you teach your students? I think that every lecture is a performance and I try and, uh, you know, give this idea to students, like PhD students that I work with, that every time you give a seminar, even if it's to your, uh, uh, your fellow experts, you're performing the mathematics and you need to think of it as performance. And actually, mathematics, it isn't just about, you know, true statements and logical consequences. You're telling a story and you've chosen that particular mathematical um, journey to go on because it's got an emotional content to it. It's got a, a moment of jeopardy when things might not go work right, a moment where everything goes, aha, and you see why things are connected. So you are writing mathematical stories and when you're giving a seminar, you need to perform them. But it is a performance. So, so I think my theatre has really uh, played an important part in, in how I will give a lecture. Thank you for listening to the Hay Festival podcast. I'll be back next week talking to writer and neurologist Susanna O'Sullivan about her writing dreams, psychosomatic symptoms during lockdown and trashy TV. If you enjoyed this podcast, we'd love you to tell your friends or give it a rating. This podcast was hosted by Poppy Evans and produced by Xabier Najaro Echanith. We will be back next Friday.